0: enjoying the music. It's on paper, great man. Okay, doke. Live from the traditional lands of the Treaty of Chicago and the Potawatomi people who lived on the ridge, this is Hell in 2016. The Lakota, the Dakota, and all nine tribes that comprise the Great Sioux Nation, along with thousands of non native supporters, protested peacefully and unarmed on land stolen. From them against the Dakota's Access Pipeline Which threatened the only Freshwater intake For the Standing Rock Reservation Eventually their protest camp was raided And destroyed as security personnel Representing the United States government Yet again forcibly and violently removed Native people From Standing Rock The pipeline they feared was completed And it runs to this day The pipeline actually is functioning And working today Meanwhile, several months earlier, a group of heavily armed white men invaded and occupied a national wildlife refuge in Oregon under the pretense that the local people know what's best for them in their land and they don't need the federal government to tell them what they can and cannot do. Why should a pristine wildlife refuge go unexploited when so many people in the area need jobs? Those armed insurgents were met by a far more welcoming police force, even allowed to come and go as they please, despite one of the refuge... Occupiers Being killed by police And creating a martyr For the movement and the cause There was no forcible violent removal In fact, while the Dakota Access protesters Were forced off their land By a president from the Democratic Party, Barack Obama When the Trump administration and Republican Party Arrived in Washington They were actually appointing people From the wildlife refuge occupation movement To positions within the administration we will learn what these two standoffs have in common, what they what makes them so so incredibly different in a few minutes. When we will be speaking with writer and editor Jacqueline Keeler, author of Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Sacred Lands. Jacqueline is a Dine' a Dakota writer. Jacqueline is editor of the anthology Edge of Morning: Native Voices Speak for the Bears' Ears. Follow Jacqueline on Twitter at jf keeler k-e-e-l-e-r i'm your bitter blind broke gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host chuck mertz producing today is egon Sheely, with only an assist from alex jerry who is lurking in the shadows what's new by you egon
1: puppy town What about Puppy Town? Uh, We got a nine-week-old chow-chow last week, so it is all puppy all the time.
0: (laughs) So this is not a pandemic puppy that you are going to be returning as soon as you get your vaccinations like so many people are doing right now?
1: I sure hope not. I'm sure my wife hopes not, too. (laughs) Generally very good. It knows how to sit already, so I'm counting that as a win. That honestly. is a huge win. <laughs> so with myself and my girlie all vaccinated
0: up, our schedule is suddenly in very, very high demand. Last weekend, we went camping in southwestern Michigan with my sister-in-law and her son, our nephew. It was fantastic to get out of the house for 48 straight hours. Absolutely wonderful. Now this weekend, we're going to central Illinois as my girlfriend's father, who is now retired, is being honored by the school he helped build. When he started there, they were leasing space and strip malls, and now they have a geothermal, heated and cooled, state-of-the-art campus providing affordable and accessible education to a community that desperately needs access to affordable learning. We're all very proud and excited, except some of the people we will be seeing have chosen to not get vaccinated. And after a year plus of anxiety about being near anyone, then the last several weeks of anxiety about actually re-entering a vaccinated society, I now have to deal with the new brand of ex- anxiety I'm experiencing, and that is of being near people who are refusing to get the vaccine. So I got to look forward to that this weekend. But more importantly than any of that, Egon, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience?
1: this week's question from hell is what virtue are you signaling and that is which virtue are you signaling <laughs> which virtue
0: are you signaling the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell merchandise you want you can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to this and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell remember without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your amazing support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash this is hell radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email us at chuckithishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, as we do each and every week. Egan will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Jacqueline. Not only can you email us, tweet at us, message us via Facebook, you can also send us stuff in the mail to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And we got mail from our self described conservative anarchist friends at Kennedy Printing in the McDougall Hunt neighborhood on Detroit's east side. The good people at Kennedy Printing, hat tip to Mimi. Have been sending us beautifully printed Four by six inch cardboard prints With phrases like Free your mind and your ass will follow As well as quotes by Bayard Rustin And Frederick Jameson And phrases like Progress makes its own problems As well as a series that read Joe Biden is the last racist Or last capitalist Or last sexist president They have even sent us stunning books On the people's history of printing And the history of printing in Detroit well, we got another card from Kennedy printing this weekend. This one was a quote, or has a quote, sorry, from Denmark Vesey, who was arrested in 1822 and subsequently executed for being suspected of plotting what was to be a great slave revolt called the Rising. The quote is what Denmark Vesey said to his captors when they found him guilty in a kangaroo court and sentenced him to be hanged until dead. Vesey said, nothing but the quote sent by kennedy printing and that is the work of insurrection will go on vesey was saying they could hang him however they could not kill the idea of revolt so thanks again to the wonderful people at detroit's kennedy printing and especially mimi machete we also heard from rue and glasgow again, who writes this time to offer a guest suggestion. Rue writes, Hey folks, I'm going to say up front that I have not read this book, but it was recommended to me by the good people at Liverpool's News From Nowhere Women's Cooperative, so I think I can vouch for its quality. If you haven't done so already, I'd be really interested to hear an interview with Rian Jones and Matthew Brown, authors of the book Paint the Town Red, How Preston Took Back Control and Your Town Can Too. I've noticed an increased interest in buying local and stimulating your own economy since everything changed last year, with even the most apathetic of people willing to spend a little more to keep a friend, neighbor, local business owner in a job. And apparently, That's only a small part of what we can do to help transform our local communities. I must know more. Hope all is well. Keep up the hell. Rude from Glasgow, P.S. You can look up News from Nowhere. It's a fantastic women's nonprofit that aims to make stories, be they books, CDs, or DVDs, with a positive message of a better world available to the people of Liverpool. They gave me a pamphlet to buy books from them, online with the motto buy from the real Amazons (laughs) Which is effing solid you can find out more about News from Nowhere at their website, newsfromnowhere.org.uk. And the Preston model that Rue's talking about, that was all the rage back in 2017 with all sorts of reports on how this can be a new model in economic sustainability, inclusive health or wealth building, as it was called, and community wealth building. That uh, actually serves the public. It was all based on a similar program and project in Cleveland, Ohio. So the Preston model is actually based on the Cleveland model. To find out more about community wealth building Visit the Preston government's website Preston.gov.uk Where they explain exactly how they build Community health and wealth Thanks Ru And we will put Rian Jones and Matthew Brown Authors of the book Paint the Town Red On our guest list Finally we got an email from Timmy Who writes Hi Chuck and Alex You don't remember me But I've been listening to This Is Hell almost every Saturday morning for about 20 years. About three years ago, I drove over from my Evanston apartment and picked up your Greek guest, Christos Giovannopoulos, and had him over for a nice lunch. About 10 years ago, I urged Flint Taylor to listen to your program. I've been to two of your summer parties. I know Pete, the the owner of Carrie's Lounge, slightly, and I'm a very good friend of his brother, Stell. What else? Not much. I still listen on Saturday mornings because I don't know how to do Stitcher and don't have any Apple devices. I didn't know if any of the heavy hitters have contacted you already. I was going to stop by the bar, your office, but my car is in the shop and I cannot get there until I do not know when. My point is, Julian Assange's father and brother will be in Chicago on June 17th, a week from this Thursday. There's going to be a program at 5 p.m. in front of the British Consulate on 620, or I should say at at 625 North Michigan Avenue followed by a walk, a march over to the ABC7 TV office on 190 North State, State Street. I'm adding my little voice to Andy Thayer's, one of the organizers, Flint Taylor's, one of the speakers, Kevin Gastola's, one of the speakers, at least one Chicago alderman to request that you find one hour to interview Julian's father and brother John and Gabriel Shipton this week so that the Chicago community can hear them speak, whether by podcast or radio, and hopefully come out to the event on June 17th. Thanks, Timmy. First, Timmy, I do remember you, and you are impossible to forget. (laughs) Secondly, that is the single most name-dropping related to This as Hell we have ever received. Third, to repeat, there is a rally in support of Julian Assange on Thursday, June 17th at 5 p.m. in front of the British Council at 625 North Michigan Avenue, which will be followed by a march to the offices of the local ABC affiliate Channel 7, which is at 190 North State Street. ...to demand coverage of the Assange story and the protest. Speakers include This Is Hell contributor Flint Taylor, past guest Kevin Gostola, and is organized by past guest Andy Thayer. We'll also feature speeches, speeches by Julian Assange's father and brother, John and Gabriel Shipton. As for us having John and Gabriel on the show prior to that event... I am entirely clueless about our schedule next week All I'm thinking about is how I have to hang out with all these unvaccinated people In the meantime, uh, listening audience If you would or would not like to hear Julian Assange's father and brother On This Is Hell discussing the case against Julian Tell us one way or the other by emailing us at chuckatthisishell.com DMing us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio Or messaging us via Facebook Messenger at facebook.com slash Radio. And remember, if you just want to send us stuff in the mail, you can that's This Is Hell 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Coming up, two standoffs over land with two very, very different outcomes. Egon will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is Which vir- virtue are you signaling? Which virtue are you signaling? But which virtue is harder to say than what virtue? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail Wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want You can see all the ways you can support This Is Hell By going to thisishell.com and clicking on support Staring into the abyss so you don't have to This is hell Why is it that when unarmed peaceful protesters Stand up against a company that poses an environmental threat That could poison water That thousands of people depend upon Why do those protesters get their ass kicked by police While armed protesters who invade and occupy a national wildlife refuge Are handled with kit gloves And why do those connected with the armed land grabbers Find themselves appointed within the Trump administration While those who are trying to protect their land End up feeling the full brunt force Directed by the Obama administration Here to help us understand What the 2016 occupation of Oregon's Malheur National Wildlife Refuge and the protests at Standing Rock have in common, what makes them different, and what both say about the history of the United States and the stories we tell ourselves about the United States of America. Writer and editor Jacqueline Keeler is author of Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Sacred Lands. Welcome to This is Hell, Jacqueline.
2: Um, thank you. Thanks for having me, Jack.
0: This is a really fascinating book. You write about a Lakota protesting in Washington, D.C. against the Dakota Access Pipeline, holding a staff and struggling with and eventually being arrested by a group of armed officers. You explain the Lakota youth that had begun the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline had carried that staff across the country from North Dakota to Washington, D.C. They had run thousands of miles to request that the Army Corps of Engineers reconsider allowing the crude oil pipeline to be built just a mile north of the sole intake source of water for the reservation. The young man was not just fighting for an object, but for a symbol of that prayer, that prayer a new generation was carrying for the future. So are protests like those against the Dakota access pipeline, not only for survival and public health, but are the protests religious in nature?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that for, as i in the book i describe sort of the difference between the creation stories of an indigenous people and that of a colonial people right and uh and in basically you know, encoded into that creation story, the origin story of an indigenous people is a relationship to the land. And that relationship um, has spiritual aspects to it and and, uh, and agreements that are made between the land itself and the people. And this is what makes them a people, right? And uh, And so, In that sense, yes. I mean, I think that um, in Western society, concepts of religion and spirituality are really different. I mean, for most of Europe, um, their present religion came to them in the form of empire. It it was the religion of empire, of the emperor in Rome, and it was imposed upon them as an act of force and domination. Uh, For us, it's very different. For indigenous people, uh, it is not the story of colonization and domination our our spirituality comes from our relationship to the earth itself, to to the land. And and I, I note that for my father's people, for the Dakota and Lakota people, um you know, our origin story as a people really begins with the meeting with the white buffalo calf woman, who was the manifestation of the Great Plains itself. And in that meeting, we had agreements that were made. And we uh, it wasn't we weren't given uh, complete dominance over the landscape uh, and the right to exploit it as we please. Uh, We were we made an agreement with the land and also with the people already on the land, including uh, the the buffalo nation in particular and so uh so the prayer that was carried is 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 a manifestation and expression of that relationship of kinship with the land and all the peoples already on it and so uh so in that sense yes it is uh,
0: so does christianity then allow for colonialism environmental destruction environmental exploitation even the subjugation of other peoples in a way that native religions native spirituality does not
2: well in this specific case it does and uh you know one of the things i think um the idea that this is a christian nation based on the sort of um providence the sort of providence of dominion given by um by god right uh and by a judeo-christian god um, it is is a major part of what it means to be American. I think recently Rick Santorum was really uh, taken to task for saying that. But you know the legal basis for the land itself that the United States sites to this day is the doctrine of uh, discovery which uh is uh comes from the um, papal bulls that were a couple a couple of papal bulls from 1491 and 1550 passed by two different popes and in this papal bull it basically states that um that you know only discovering christian nations have title to the land so so the moment that the, uh, the discoverers, the explorers landed, uh, and, and they were representing, uh, you know, Christian governments under the dominion of the Pope, right? Uh, the minute they landed on our shores, the, the fee simple title of the land reverted to those Christian crowned heads in Europe. And, and the only title that Native people enjoy and Native nations enjoy um, is that of animals of occupation and use. And this is still active law in the U.S. And it's the basis for the title that the United States claims. This was first, uh, uh, this doctrine was first developed uh, by uh, one of the very first chief justices of the Supreme Court, uh, chief, uh, chief Justice John Marshall. And, uh, and basically, um, it's still active law. I mean, it was cited as recently as 2005 by... Um, um, in, a, in a decision written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in a case um, contesting uh, the Oneida Nation of New York's right to land in the city of Sherrill, New York, and uh, and it's. Um, yeah, it's still active law, and and, and in fact, you know, uh, Marshall said that uh, that even though the United States did not exist when these papal bulls were issued, uh, they they claim that uh, identity as a discovering nation because they are an English colony, which in England was under the dominion of the Pope at that time. So it is explicitly uh, uh, Christian. Uh, it is explicitly colonial, uh, and the identity of this nation is that of a colony. It's it's never been an actual country because this is not uh, these these homelands belong to other nations and they're under occupation, which we saw quite uh, visibly highlighted by uh, what happened at Standing Rock in two thousand sixteen and uh, and early two thousand seventeen, and and there you saw the. Uh, you saw the, uh, the military occupation of native lands, it was made visible to the public because uh, this is an active military occupation.
0: So let's get back a little bit to Standing Rock And I do want to talk about the history Of the Revolutionary War And uh, what this does mean For when uh, Christians See this land that has indigenous People on it that that are not Included in the Bible I want to get back to that in a little bit But you write that the scores Or the scenes of the raid of the 1851 treaty camp near the Dakota Access Pipeline Construction Corridor on October 28, 2016 Did not resemble the post-racial America Obama's administration was Supposed to usher in an America Where the lessons of the civil rights movement Had been fully integrated into the power structure Of the nation by the election of a black man As leader of the free world What does it reveal to you About the United States that even Electing as a president A black man still does not Fully integrate the civil rights movement Into the power structure Of the United States
2: and I should note um, a a law professor who actually uh, knows Indian federal law, right? right? Which right. is, um, actually pretty rare even on the Supreme Court. Um, I think uh, Justice Sonia uh, Sotomayor said that she didn't know anything about Indian federal law until she joined the Supreme Court. It's not required for judges to know, or or certainly not to pass the bar for ordinary uh, attorneys, and so it's often a law that is misunderstood. And uh, and so uh, not that it's entirely favorable to us, but it, it's better than. Um, you know, what Scalia was doing, which is he claimed he was just making up Indian federal law as he went along. <laughs> and um, but yeah, they um, yeah, I think there you get into the structure, the structural issue, uh, you know, and, and, and I would say that even if you have a native person in charge. Right. Uh, right now we have a. Uh, um, we have an amazing uh, native woman, uh, Deb Holland, who is now um, the uh, Secretary of the Interior and is overseeing um, a, a large amount of the land in the in the continental United States, and I guess probably Hawaii and Alaska too. But the uh, but she is uh, she is in charge of it. And uh, but the issue is a structural problem, is what I'm saying. The uh, I make an analogy where you kind of have to know uh, what vehicle you are driving. If you're, are you driving a sports car or are you driving a combine harvester? And if you're driving a combine harvester, even if you're in the driver's seat and you are the chief executive, uh, you are still—it's still going to harvest that wheat. That's what it's built to do. So, uh, so this is uh, even though I, I I believe that Obama had a lot of. I mean, he, he created a lot of um, outreach to tribes. Uh, you know, I think that Biden's administration is um, bringing those back—an annual meeting with tribal leaders at the White House. Uh, the, you know, of course, the appointment of uh, of uh, Deb Holland as the Interior Secretary, and, um, and and so these are incredible movements to. Uh, but at the same time, there is the structural problem whereby you have all this stuff going on, and somehow Obama is completely unaware of it. Uh, in uh, Labor Day 2016, that weekend, that was when uh, the um, when dogs were used to attack and even bite uh, uh, water protectors who were trying to protect a burial site uh, that was being dug up, and um, and this was completely ignored by the national media. I think the only media that was there was Democracy Now with Amy Goodman actually live on site, and um, and it was completely missed by Obama, who was in he was in Asia. And uh, he was in Thailand and he was being, he was questioned about it a few days later, uh, about Standing Rock was going on there. And he pretty clearly, if you look at the transcript of his responses, he was completely, no one had told him this was going on. Right? No one. And this is like, you know, when dogs were used in Selma, Alabama, this would be like the president of the United States not knowing then. And, and so there's a level in which native people are completely invisible and, and our struggles are equally invisible. And, and even a president who is well-meaning, uh, it, it doesn't translate into what's actually happening on the ground. I mean, it did take until uh, December uh, for for him to actually issue any sort of, um, well, he didn't issue it. It was issued... Um, By the uh, Army Corps of Engineers uh, to finally pull the permit that was allowing the uh, the pipeline to be built um, under the uh, the Missouri River, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, there is a structural problem here, and and also I looking at the larger issue of of uh, sort of uh, what we saw happen at the Capitol on January sixth, this sort of The fact that most of the people who identify as white in this country voted for Trump. I think for the, uh, for um, in 2016, 90% of white men with a high school diploma voted for Trump. That's nine in 10. Um, That suggests that this is a structural problem, that people who are raised um, within the, sort of a bubble of white supremacy and white privilege uh, that they are um, structurally unable to engage the problems that are happening today that they are very much ensconced in privilege and uh, and so thereby they are they are voting for um, for the for for what they see as uh, for white supremacy
0: so what is your hope then for Deb Holland as far as when it comes to success with as the secretary of the interior how much is any success that she can have already limited by the structural situation that she's facing?
2: Yeah, I think I think um, I've been pretty impressed so far. I mean, she's um, she's um, I think she's doing a great job. Uh, but the uh, but I do worry for her. I, my worry is actually based. Um, on the fact that she is going to be directly confronting a lot of these armed right groups like the Bundys, uh, they uh, because she is uh, um, head of the uh, secret of the Department of the Interior, which uh, the Bureau of Land Management. She also runs that, oversees that, uh, in addition to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and uh, so she is the one that they are going to. Um, Be dealing with because uh, a major issue at West, of course, is the issue of public lands and uh, and the desire by many uh, uh, white Republican um, uh, um, voters to see those public lands um, uh, conveyed to the states and then privatized. Right. So they can use them as they want to use them. Um, and, and this is really what the Bundys were talking about and what they are still talking about. I mean, right now today, and I'm going to be traveling down there to the Klamath River here in Oregon. Ammon Bundy is once again, uh, rallying, um, the, uh, the troops, uh, to, or his, his militia folks, uh, to basically, uh, oppose, uh, the, uh, the preeminent rights of water rights of the Klamath tribe. Um, it's a drought situation going on and um, and I think as we see more and more the impacts of climate change you're going to see more of these sorts of violent standoffs and um, and right now he is organizing one right as right now as we speak and so uh, the Klamath tribe won a historic uh, battle in the courts recognizing their their preeminent rights uh, to the water in the in the uh, Klamath River uh, basin and uh, Klamath River Valley. And uh, and so now the, that means that they get their water first um, and then everyone else, the farmers and ranchers, they have to uh, get what's left over. And, and so this is causing um, more contention. And of course, you know, uh, um, having oversight over most of the public lands in this country, I think, except for the Forest Service, you know, uh, Deb Holland is going to be, uh, you know, their, um, their nemesis, you know, and so I I do worry about that because they have um, harassed when I was covering uh, the buddy takeover in, in Harney County at at Malheur, the Malheur Wildlife wildlife Refuge. The Fish and Wildlife Service uh, employees had to be basically uh, moved um, um, to other parts of the state for their own safety. Right, Uh, they they do try to intimidate and threaten them, and and um, and she may also. Trump um, made a lot of moves when he was in um, in charge, and one of the things he did was that he. he took a lot of the Bureau, Bureau of Land Management staff and took them out of D.C. and moved them into at the local level so that they could be intimidated um, by the local white population. And Deb Holland will probably reverse that. and And the tribes were not consulted on this matter, um, and um, so they opposed this uh, move. And uh, and uh, but she's going to have to reverse it, and that will be quite contentious. She's already um, um, already issued a statement that she is. Um, advising the Biden administration to restore um, some of the, um, like the Bears Ears National Monument and Gold Butte, uh, which is right near the um, Clive and Bundy's uh, um, area where he ranches.
0: You know, that reminds me of the kind of Use of mob violence that we are seeing with the Greek government, that we're seeing with the Turkish government that we're we've been d- discussing on our show recently, where the government has these violent mobs that go out and do their dirty work for them ununiformed, so it doesn't seem like they're in the midst of a civil war. and then they just let loose these people upon the population. And they reflect the bl- political beliefs of the ruling government. To what extent do you think the Bundys are a violent mob that, reflect the beliefs of the, de- the Republican Party and therefore are doing the dirty work of the Republican Party
2: oh I think very much so I mean the uh, of course Trump uh the, the Ammon Bundy and his brother Ryan Bundy came here to Oregon to basically uh, protest uh, the imposition of a um, well, the Republicans had done these minimum um, sort of sentencing guidelines, and so they were being returned to prison to to meet those minimum um, sentencing guidelines. The Hammond family, the, the father and son ranchers who were convicted of of arson and also of poaching, and um, and so they came here to free them or to attempt to keep them from going back to prison. And as soon as uh, Trump got into office, he pardoned the Hammonds, the, the, this ran these ranchers, and and, and also tried to. Re- reissue their grazing permits, which were then later rejected. But, um, <clears throat> and also when the Hammonds were freed from prison, uh, they were actually met there by a, a billionaire Republican donor who flew them home in his private jet so they they know they have the support of and the ear of powerful people uh and powerful and wealthy people in this country and uh and and, and but I, I do think that uh, a lot of their plan um is actually to sort of invoke and they say this explicitly to invoke waco and ruby ridge and and in a sense i, I note in the book that i feel like they're holding themselves hostage uh, you know, even though they're armed and everything, uh, they're daring the government to to shoot them and and to kill them and make them martyrs, and and so um, so this is um, part of their strategy, and it works. I mean, um, you know, they. Uh, uh, I think. When the uh, when the Burns Paiute Tribe did their first press conference in January of 2016, they they said to me they said from the from the get go that if they had taken over the Malheur Wildlife Refuge, which which used to be part of the Malheur Indian Reservation, right, and um, that they would have been shot. You know that they there's no way they could have come and gone and left and 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 been allowed the sort of freedom that the the Bundys and their supporters were given to 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 occupy the uh, the refuge the way they were doing and um, and so yeah so I think it's um, entirely uh, there there is a deep connection there and um, and they are part of sort of a a um, Sort of way of pushing for the boundaries of their privilege. I, I see the Bundys as asserting their colonial rights, uh, and um, a, very different from uh, Standing Rock, where they were asserting the sovereignty of the tribes as pre-existing nations.
0: So, do police support people who are asserting their colonial rights?
2: Yes, they do. In fact, and uh, and I think I, I talk a bit about the uh, doc the. Um, Uh, the county supremacy uh, ideology, which was actually developed by Cliven Bundy's, uh, Cliven Bundy is the father of Ammon and Ryan Bundy, who had the standoff in Bunkerville in 2014 over his cattle, um, uh, illegally grazing uh, there. And uh, he, uh, an armed standoff, I should say. And he, uh, his, his attorney from 1993 uh, was uh, a woman named, um, uh, what's her name? Um, I think, um, Karen Bud Fallon and and under the Trump administration, she was actually appointed a deputy solicitor of the Bureau of Land Management, an agency which she sued for about 25 years under the RICO statutes. She actually sued government employees for in for, you know, um, enforcing government regulations under the under racketeering laws that were developed to you know fight the mafia <laughs> and uh, and then she trump made her you know the deputy solicitor and uh, but she had the she developed this whole ideology of this idea that the uh, based on Anglo-Saxon law right you know from before Norman that when the Norman invasion right under old Anglo-Saxon law that the sheriff was Uh, the most powerful person within the borders of the county itself. This is her idea. And so you have a lot of sheriffs who have bought into this. I mean, uh, to to be elected sheriff in this country, it's an elected position. You don't actually, there's no requirement to have any law enforcement background or or legal education. So anybody can be sheriff, right? And and so you have um, this uh, constitutional sheriff's organization that has, uh, that claims to have uh, several hundred members many of whom actually are sheriffs now or were former sheriffs and um, well, all of them are former sheriffs, but many are still sheriffs now. And so uh, so when you see uh, Ammon Bundy and you can see the video on YouTube posted by the Oregonian uh, newspaper um, of him having a, a, a talk with the sheriff of, of Harney County in, uh, in Oregon, you see this sort of collegial Sort of thing. And and, uh, and in fact, they, um, they did have uh, the neighboring uh, sheriff, uh, the neighboring county there. Uh, he was very, uh, very much on their side. And uh, so, so there are sheriffs who believe this as well, that they have the ultimate uh, sort of Dominion within the county boundaries, like they're more powerful than the president of the United States, than Congress, than the governor of the state, the state legislature. They are the most powerful person in the world within the boundaries of the county, and this is a way in which they are asserting power. They are trying to, uh, you know, uh, kind of enforce these sort of made-up ideologies, and and then to begin to leverage that to have power.
0: So, is that a police state?
2: Well, I mean, uh, they believe that uh, that the um, that the sheriff is accountable to the people. And that's why they formed that um, Harney. Um, uh, what do they call it? Um, they they name a lot of this stuff after um, these sort of citizen committees that were created during the Revolutionary War, right, by the colonists, and um, and so they formed sort of a um, Harney County uh, committee, and they were going to try the sheriff for not um, standing with them, right? So they do believe the sheriff is accountable to sort of in this ye old Anglo-Saxon ideology, this sort of reading of history that he's accountable to the, you know, the Anglo Saxon people, right? of the county, the, the ordinary Anglo-Saxon people. And it's interesting because in the book, I did a lot of research on Anglo-Saxon law, common law, English common law, and because uh, they, re- they actually refer to it quite a bit. It's sort of shocking. And um, uh, you know they talk about opening the commons. They're really rough. I mean, the, the Bundys are of English um, descent. And, and the name Bundy itself, um, I actually looked it up because uh, Clive and Bundy in his house there in Bunkerville, Nevada, has a sign on the wall that says, remember what what the name Bundy means. And I was like, what does the name Bundy mean? And it actually has a meaning based in old Anglo-Saxon feudal traditions of bound servitude. Uh, It means bound servitude, where you give your bond, you become a bondsman or a bondswoman, uh, which is another word for slave later on. But, um, and they would give their bond to a lord, uh, like an earl or a count. Uh, Counties are named after earls and counts. Uh, and um, And then they would get land to farm. And uh, and then, but under uh, allegedly under uh, after William the Conqueror invaded in 1066, and he actually killed 90 percent of the Anglo-Saxon nobility, and uh, and replaced them with his own people, his own um, Norman. Uh, co- You know, buddies, and 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 to this day, they still rule. They still own the descendants of of William the Conqueror and his friends. Still own most of England, most of the land in England. It's kind of shocking, and um, but they um, they turned it into actual serfdom. So at that point, the Bundys became serfs, which means that uh, they they were owned with the land. Um, which is a very different relationship than what indigenous people have. Our relationship is directly with the spirit of the land itself. We mediate, Their relationship is with a man who has dominion, a, a, single, year, a single man. and not even an Anglo-Saxon matter of this, but we're talking a Norman Lord. Right. And uh, and so this is there's a real difference in their relationship to the land, which is based in this feudal system. And um, so I go over a lot of that history. And of course, later uh, they were kicked off the land um, when uh, when these lords uh, decided they would make more money raising sheep and things like that. And so they they actually sort of. Scrubbed these villages um, off the English countryside and made these people homeless, and then criminalized their homelessness, and and then put them into uh, um, sort of um, workhouses, entire families, and then basically sold their labor labor cheap to factories, which helped fuel the industrial revolution. Which is actually where uh, the Mormon Church first started recruiting people. They they sent missions to. Uh, these sort of Dickensian uh, conditions uh, where people were living in, in Liverpool and Manchester, and they recruited from people who were basically starving to death while they are working full time at these factories and brought them here to America. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's a history of dispossession. and 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 so they are using their colonial history, their colonial rights that were promised, they believe were promised to them and encoding them in this sort of false history, this false legal history, and um, and then asserting that. And they're they're having some success.
0: While the Bundys got what they seemingly wanted under Trump, the Dakota and their supporters, the Lakota, the Sioux, they, they did not get what they wanted from Obama. To you, what explains the success of activist politics like the Bundys in the Republican Party, but the lack of success of activism like that at Standing Rock within the Democratic Party? Why did the supporters of Malheur get big positions in the Trump administration and those at Standing Rock get beaten, especially when the Malheur protesters and their supporters are armed and clearly with far more violent intent.
2: Well, I actually, you know, I I, I think that uh, when we talk about the prayer that came out of Standing Rock, it's very interesting to note that two really um, uh, very um, promising uh, colonial leaders, uh, one would be Deb Holland. You know, of course, she was inspired to run for Congress by going to Standing Rock, right, and uh, and uh, and then also, um, you know, um, um, uh, AOC, uh, you know, uh, Alexandria um, um, Ortiz Cortez. Ocasio Cortez, <laughs> yes. Ocasio Cortez, yes. I'm sorry, and uh, and yeah, she was also she also went to Standing Rock and was inspired to run for Congress, and so. Uh, there is something coming out of Standing Rock, uh, you know, that is inspiring a new sort of colonial leadership, which I hope someday we can actually sit down and negotiate, renegotiate our, rela- our relationship with, right? That's the hope. Um, the, um, But yeah, but when uh, after, uh, you know, tr- um, the Obama administration was very slow to address the issue, uh, you know, we went through many court rulings uh, during the uh, standoff um, at Standing Rock, uh, that, uh where the court's, ruled against the tribes, even though, you know, legally the tribes are in a much, uh, particularly the, uh, the, the Great Sioux Nation, the, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe is, was part of the Great Sioux Nation. Um, these treaties uh, are actually, were, were of course, um, you know, entered into, uh, treaties are only entered into by sovereign nations under international law. Uh, you, uh, these treaties, uh, the Fort Laramie Treaties were actually ratified by the U.S. Senate, they are, uh, under the Constitution, the, the highest law of the land, right? So the tribes, uh, you know, the Yankton Sea tribe, my dad's tribe as well, was part of this, uh, um, you know, the, uh, the legal suits that uh, were, around, were around the Dakota Access Pipeline. And uh, the different uh, Dakota and Lakota tribes, they are on very strong legal footing, uh, with uh, invoking the treaties however they are not listened to and uh, and of course the treaty uh, that they were uh, referencing actually uh, gave um, the, the 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 US Senate ratified they uh, they recognized the Great Sioux Nations right to the crossing of the Missouri River so um, and the entire and Morton County and all of Morton County which uh, of course the Morton County Sheriff sheriff um, Kirchmeyer he is the one that worked with the energy um uh, energy transfer partners, the builders of the pipeline, to to basically mount a whole a whole scale a military assault on the Standing Rocks, who Tribe with all the world watching.
0: You uh, earlier you were mentioning the doctrine of discovery and how it seems that is the Bundy narrative, the way that they view the world. Then you mentioned. A Dakota story of the Aya, a monster with an insatiable hunger that eats everything it encounters, including entire tribes. It is said that the campfires of the tribes could be seen glowing inside its body. People would live and die and spend their entire lives inside the creature. Of course, the story has a positive ending with a hero killing the Aya, freeing the nations and marching out of the monster with them to repopulate a world left barren and bereft by the ayahs' greed, you add as people put their lives on the line, motivated by stories that define their relationships to the land and to each other. The standoffs of the Bundys and the Lakota Dakota people demonstrate how these stories have power. This leaves us with one quest- with questions, including whose stories will carry the day? Are the Bundys and the Lakota Dakota are they, are, are they fighting over narratives? Are politics any more than? competing stories we tell ourselves about the United States with one side believing it has done no wrong and it is driven by divine will and the other the suffering from its mistakes and doing what it can to reveal them
2: yeah I believe so I mean I I often say that the uh, that white um, the white privilege is uh, um, you know is is basically growing up in the house that white supremacy built right so uh, so that's you know, you think it's the whole world when you live in that house. You know, you your 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 movements are directed by the hallways of that house. That what you can see of the, the the outside world is framed by the windows of that house. So this really, um, you know, makes their uh, point of view incredibly um, limited, right? And um, and I think that's white supremacy is uh, it, you know, uh the concepts of race really started in Virginia and. Uh, the, the modern concepts of race that we have now uh, if you look at the Roman Empire it's more about being a citizen right a Roman citizen versus not being a Roman citizen being a barbarian uh, but here this the concepts of race that were developed in Virginia in order to control the population uh, the uh, the planters uh, the elite class there they formulated this way to, to divide and conquer um, the um, the lower uh, the uh, the indentured European servants and also the uh, people's stolen and held in bondage um, from Africa there. And, uh, and they, they wanted to divide them because they did, uh, they did unite in the 1600s uh, to fight the elite class, right? A bacon's rebellion and, and this was very scary to the planters and so they uh, they basically gave some um, sort of uh, some rights uh, greater rights and, and and access to colonial spoils to people who who were white and then uh, and then beca- and then uh, denied them to um, folks who more uh, who had been uh, taken from Africa and, and held there in bondage so it's um it's, you know it, it, it's from the beginning it's part of the DNA of this country and and we need to contend with it and I believe it is a really serious problem because uh, it's endangering the world I mean with the election of Trump we were taken out of the uh, um, you know the uh, uh, the climate change the Paris Accords and uh, and and set back that whole movement quite a bit to to, to deal with a very real issue uh, the um, you know he was doing really dangerous moves with uh, the dictator, uh, his name, Kim Jong Il, in uh, North Korea, which, you know, kind of taking a chance with nuclear war. <laughs> I, it's like, literally, we could have ended the world during his administration, and it would have been because of white supremacy. You know, it, it would have been because people who are voting, um, votes are shaped by white supremacy, are making decisions that are harming and could harm everybody on the planet.
0: And you write that the opening phrase, the declaration of independence that is remembered, we hold these truths to be self-evident, evidence that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. What is forgotten is the Declaration's list of, quote, repeated injuries and usurpations by King George III, cited as reasons for dissolving political bands with Great Britain, uh, that which includes the, this characterization of Native nations. And here's that characterization. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is as undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Is the Declaration of Independence also a declaration of race war, e- even genocide? I mean, what happens to our understanding of the origins of the United States of America when we ignore this part of the Declaration of Independence?
2: That's a great question because I did look a lot at the uh, you know the declaration and also. Uh, because the the Bundys quote quoted so much and what I found was a really different reading of the origins of the Revolutionary War which is you know often about you know no taxation without representation but what I found looking at it actually was that uh, and, and that line merciless Indian King George the and merciless Indian savages is actually tied to uh, the proclamation line of 1763 which uh, King George the issued as part of the settlement for the French and Indian War right which is known As the Seven Years' War in Europe, and and known uh, by historians as World War Zero. And um, so they uh, basically, uh, it was actually George Washington, when he was a young man, uh, about 20 years old, he was sent, dispatched by uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia with a militia. Uh, to go and, um, you know, check out what the French were doing. Uh, Virginia at the time had claims to the Ohio Valley, uh, which includes now Western Pennsylvania, in addition to the state of Ohio. And, um, and so he was in Western Pennsylvania and they were, the French were building more forts along the Ohio River to sort of firm up their claim to the area. And um, and he, he engaged in a... Um, in a sort of battle, um, he formed this thing called Fort Necessity, and uh, and he um, in this in this fighting he accident he they killed uh, a French diplomat, right, which set off an international incident. It was like you know um, the start of World War One and the shooting of you know the the Archduke and stuff. And uh, and he he uh, the French um, prevailed and they the French officers forced him to sign a letter that was written in French he couldn't read it uh, admitting guilt to killing this French diplomat which was really the beginning of um, the French and Indian War which de- which actually doubled the national debts of both France and and, and Great Britain and uh, and and so in a sense the inter- the land hunger of the colonists uh indebted the british people and the french people for a lot of money um they were taxing the, the their, their, they were taxing the home country in pursuit of their own um of their own profits right and um and so this is why they were being taxed this is why they were had all these taxes to pay for a war they started right and the reason why uh they had Soldiers quartered there was to stop them from going into Indian land and breaking the terms of the um, of the treaty, right to end the war, and uh, and so um, so that's a, you don't you know hear that very much that you know George Washington started the first world war I mean World War Zero that it. It, it was an incredibly expensive thing for the home country, uh, and um, and that they were then try because the state legislatures, um, the, the colonies, uh, you know, um, uh, they would not tax their own people to pay for the war. They just wouldn't do it. So this is why King George III had to tax them in different ways. Uh, in order to basically try to pay for the war they started. Um, And uh, the stamp tax and such, of course, only impacted the wealthiest because they were the only ones who used paper that way. And um, and so, yeah, so this was... And the desire for Indian land, and so you see them um, after the Revolutionary War. You know they take all of the Iroquois Confederacy, uh, you know, which becomes upstate New York. They 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 you know they have all the Northwest. What's called the Northwest Territories. You know from um, you know from Ohio up to. Uh, uh, to Michigan, uh, you know, all of these areas are suddenly part of that. And so this expansion west, probably many people would, would not have happened if they had not broken free of of the British, because the British wanted them to stay along the coast so they could control them better. Uh, they didn't want them going inland and uh, and taking Indian land. Uh, so so yes, yeah, so the Revolutionary War was really fought to gain access to Indian land. I mean, uh, you know, the Louisiana Purchase, all these things that happened in the years following would not have been possible without it. And, and and Native nations would have had more time to to develop themselves, to begin to, uh, we would probably, if, if it hadn't happened, if the Revolutionary War hadn't happened, we'd probably have an extant uh, Cherokee Nation. Uh, you know, the Iroquois Confederacy would probably still be here, Controlling most of New York State, we would have Indian. We would have, you know, Mohawk city, modern cities, and and language and books. We have all kinds of things. And uh, and this is um, so when they're invoking the Revolutionary War and the language of the Revolutionary War, the Bundys are. Um, they are invoking. Um, yes, they are invoking um, a, a form of uh and warfare and and, um, and genocide for profit.
0: I've got just a couple more questions for you Jacqueline Uh, You write the Six Nations Confederacy Had lost the hills of western New York In the Revolutionary War where Mormon Church founder Joseph Smith claimed to have found the golden tablets and transcribed them into the Book of Mormon using typical folk magic of the time, there were the ancient homelands of my own children 's these were the ancient homelands of my own children 's Iroquois forebears. The landscape rich with evidence of long human occupation must have troubled Joseph Smith and other newcomers since they had been taught everything had to fit within the history. Presented by the Bible This may have led to the fervor Of their religious response In what came to be known As the burned over district How much did the very existence Of native peoples Here in the, in the Americas Contradict the beliefs Put forward in the Bible And does that anti-native attitude Persist to this day In conservative forms Of evangelical Christianity Is Christian conservatism Anti-indigenous
2: yeah, I think it, it uh, I and mean, we saw with Rick Santorum's comments, you know, the idea that there was nothing of value that was gained from Native Nation, Native cultures, it's all a Christian culture, right? And, uh, but in fact, uh, yeah, I do believe it did. I mean, I think that today we can't appreciate the extent to which uh, this sort of history that exists outside of the Bible, what a um, what an immense challenge that would be uh, psychologically to uh, to Americans of that time, right? And uh, it, it's just because it, 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 it's the main their main source and sometimes the only book that they've read right, and uh, so uh, so yeah so the attempt to try to shoehorn uh, Native people into the Bible you know um, is is quite um, is a, is a pretty natural response I think uh, and um, but I, I sort of feel like in the you know I, I mean there were already. Um, the lands were already cultivated. The, the Many of the roads were already there, you know, uh, and uh, and of course the smiths were, their their alleged job was going out and trying to dig up, um, you know, old uh, tablets and different, you know, fortune hunting at night, right? Um, although some people think they may actually have been resurrectionists actually digging up bodies for medical schools. <laughs> I saw that. But, um, but yeah, it's interesting. Uh, uh, it's, um, yeah, I do think it's, uh, I do think it did challenge their ideas but you know I do make a point too that uh, the, particularly the Iroquois Confederacy had such a huge impact on the colonists. You have to understand it was an extant, very large powerful native nation and uh, and, and and it did have a, it did exert a cultural and political influence on the minds of the colonists and uh, and of course uh, the most famous one being of course, um, uh, um, uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, who had, uh, published many of the speeches of the, uh, Tadaho and the, the leaders of the Confederacy. And, uh, and I think one of his first bestsellers was publishing the, 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 the um, their, uh, speeches and translating them from, uh, Mohawk into English. And, um, and yeah, and, and they, they urged, uh, the, um, They urged the uh, colonial leaders to unite like the Iroquois Confederacy was a Confederacy of first five nations and then a six nation when Tuscarora joined them. And, um, and, and it had stood for a thousand years there. And, uh, and so uh, I think uh, Congress issued an acknowledgement of this, uh, I think back in the late nineties, officially acknowledged the um, contributions of the Iroquois Confederacy and uh, to the creation of the, of the, um, of of the Constitution and, and the United States itself, also uh, the uh, women's rights movement was deeply impacted by. Uh, you know, uh, women in the Iroquois Confederacy were the ones who chose the leaders. Uh, the the men didn't have a vote, and um, it was all done matrilineally through clan systems. And so, uh, and they also had a lot of legal rights that white women did not possess. Uh, And in fact, uh, Seneca Falls, New York was the location of one of the first women's rights conferences because women from Seneca Falls, New York saw Seneca women in the adjacent village to them. Seneca, The Seneca Nation is part of the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, They saw them reorganize their government. And they could see in day-to-day life, they could see that those women had rights that they did not have. Um, if you read the speeches from Seneca Falls, you can see some of them saying, like, we see that they can walk around at night and they're not raped, uh, that their children always remember their name, that they had. And, and at the time, women, white women were legally dead under the law. They had no legal status. And, um, and so... Uh, so just visually seeing another society that was living in a completely different way and challenging these accepted ideas of of patri, you know, heteropatriarchy um, really uh, made it possible for them to think they had the right to demand these things. And and so when we talk about modern society and we talk about you know bringing de- democrat democracy overseas or women's rights to other countries, we are talking about. Um, Things that are the product of of this uh, of this colonial cross pollination with indigenous nations.
0: One last question for you, Jacqueline. We've been speaking to writer and editor Jacqueline Keeler. She is author of Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Sacred Lands. You can follow Jacqueline on Twitter at jfkeeler. That's K E E L E R. She is also editor of the anthology Edge of Morning: Native Voices Speak. For the bear's ears. And there's some really wonderful uh, storytelling as well in this book that you, you just got to read this book. It really is an amazing, it's a tour de force. And you're, you're, uh, what I've learned from you this morning is just amazing. And I cannot thank you enough. I got one last question for you. Unfortunately, we call it the question from hell the question we hate to ask, <laughs> you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. If this is a battle over narrative, can that battle over the narrative be won by those who support native peoples? Because, you know, we are taught the Revolutionary War was a war for democracy and against monarchy. Is there any way you're going to win that narrative battle when you are saying that it was a war for colonialism and greed?
2: I I hope so. I think that is actually um, the only answer. Uh, I think that we need to have um, we need to get away from these stories of uh, just simple American exceptionalism uh, to uh, to the truth you know, the, the truth. I mean, I give this lecture about the U.S., how the U.S. is still a colony, right? And, uh, and I often end the lecture uh, by, you know, turning to my audience, which is often, you know, mostly very well-meaning progressive white people. And I, and I turn to them and I say, you know, look, you're a colonist, you know, uh, but you're a good person. You're a moral person. You know, my question to you, and really the question of your very existence is what would ethical colonialism look like? And I think this is the question of America. I think we have to ask ourselves this question. Um, well, and I, I think it's interesting because it puts the person in a different position at the table, gives them a different view of the world, and presents different answers and solutions. And so, my hope is that as you know, um, the prayer of standing rock is carried forward. We and the leadership. Is um, you know is changing uh, that we will be able to sit down at the table and renegotiate this relationship, which is so harmful to Native people. You know, uh, Native youth have the highest suicide rates. You know, w- Native women have the highest murder and rape rates in the country, uh, bar none. And and this is the cost of the American dream. And uh, and we need to change that.
0: Is that why the right fears critical race theory so much? Because it challenges accurately their beliefs, their myths of the United States origins.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, it's uh, it, it's always a question of leveraging power, and how do you leverage power? And certainly, storytelling is a way to do that. Uh, and it's what they are doing themselves. They're leveraging power, and um, and of course, they have the land. They have the acres. Most of rural America is owned by is it is a white populated area, very low population, but they still have a real grip on um, you know through the electoral college, and um, and you know they have much more representation per person in the the Senate, uh, all these things they it does translate into um, to real power as well.
0: And it's important to remember that to this day, the Bundys are still grazing illegally on federal land and the Dakota Access Pipeline is functioning, which is yes. a horrible shame. Jacqueline, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. I've, I've learned so much today. This has really been incredible. And th- this conversation could go on for another three hours. I've really enjoyed <laughs> every minute of it. Thank you so much for being on our show today.
2: Thank you so much, Chuck
0: Take care This is not the media As you can tell from that conversation This is hell And if you liked what you just heard Please support Completely Listener Supported This Is Hell By subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast Which features a brand new monologue by me And a classic archived interview that is unavailable anywhere else online You can subscribe right now by going to patreon.com Slash, this is hell, Egon. Please remind our listening audience what this week's question from hell is and tell us, how are our listeners answering so far?
1: This week's question from hell is, what virtue are you signaling? And our uh, listeners have this to say We have Benjamin C saying, institutionalizing guilt. We have Wally R. saying, Returning the grocery cart to the corral. Very very noble, Wally. I appreciate that. Especially
0: those ones that if you push them a little bit out of the parking lot, they lock up, the electric ones that lock up.
1: I hate those things. Oh, you gotta gotta love capitalism. Yeah. I mean, uh, we've got Adam A., the sacred chow. (laughs) Jeffrey D. chimes in, poking the evil eye with a sharp stick. Warren L. says, My cat drinks Evian. (laughs) Quite, quite lovely. Also naive backwards, uh, just for (laughs) everybody to notice. Uh, Zach N. says, Hedonism. All right. Gotta love that. Gotta love that. Uh, Martin F. left us a G.I. Joe gif, so that's fantastic. (laughs) Uh, Bill W. says, God guns, freedom is my bat signal. (laughs) And we've got Rob H. saying, Buzzy, Flaps, Ziggy, and Dizzy. Whatever that might no mean. Idea. <laughs> no idea. Whatever that might mean. And we've got Neil C who says, My super ego can beat up your super <laughs> ego. Any more? Uh, That's it for now We've got a few for tomorrow too Sweet The person with our favorite
0: answer To this week's question Now wins your choice Of whatever This is hell Merchandise you want You can check out All of our stuff right now By going to Thisishell.com And clicking on support You can uh, leave your answer At our Facebook page Tweet it to us Email it to us But we must have your answer By the end of Thursday's show When we are announcing This week's winner As we do each week Following Jeff Dorchin In the moment of truth Egon uh, Who the hell is on Tomorrow's Wednesday's Live one hour show At 10am Chicago time Right here at Thisishell.com
1: Tomorrow on Wednesday, we have epidemiologist Rob Wallace, and he'll be talking to us about the present and future of the COVID-19 pandemic.
0: And I was reminded this week that the first time he was on, he told us that he was a phylogeographer, which led to a conversation about what the hell is a phylogeographer. So I'm glad that we're going to go with epidemiologist from now on, which he is an epidemiologist because nobody knows what the hell a phylogeographer is. And what about on Thursday's show?
1: Sorry, I didn't write that in the notes field for Egon. Uh, Erica Eisen is going to be on to talk about her piece on the other Nuremberg trials
0: for Boston Review. Egon, what happened to your voice? He you sounded oddly like Alex. That was an amazing impersonation. You are doing some fantastic work here, Egon. I really appreciate
1: it. I I'm do your- my best in hell, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Egon Sheely. Thanks to Jacqueline Keeler, our guest. Thanks to egon shealy for running the board thanks to alex for producing and for booking today's guest pretending to know what i'm talking about since 1996 this is hell